I honestly think that she was probably just stared stupid and couldn't really, what did I say? Did I say that wrong? To be honest, I think she was stared stupid and she, okay, roll it again. I honestly think that she was just stared stupid and she, uh, why can't I say that right? Hi, Idaho and true crime followers alike. My name is Andy with an I, and this is the Idaho Crime Squad Pod. Crime Squad Pod, where we talk about crime and creepy things that happen here in our beloved potato state. I don't have much business to talk about this week. Um, I think I pretty much covered it in our little update there. But first things first, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners. Her name is Tia. I was told that you are refreshing the page every single day for a new episode, and I love to hear it. The team really appreciates you. So Tia, thank you for being a listener. Also, if you guys are listening, wherever you're listening, make sure you guys review the podcast. I would absolutely love to give more shout outs. I just honestly don't know the names of the people who listen because we don't have a Patreon or anything set up yet. So if you want a shout out, go leave us a kindly worded review on Apple Podcasts and I'll get to it. So today we are going to my favorite place on earth. That is sarcasm, Eastern Idaho. Now, don't get me wrong. There are parts of Eastern Idaho that I do like. You guys already know how I feel about Pocatello and don't even get me freaking started on Rexburg. You guys know I I kid, I kid. There's nothing wrong with these places. I'm sure the people there are great. I just have my personal opinions because I am a true crime researcher. Okay, we're going to be in like the Burley, Idaho. Paul, Idaho is the actual name of the town, but that's that's the general area of where we're going to be. So very much Eastern. And today we're going to be talking about Sandra Jonas. So Sandra, aka Sandy, I think that she's 68 today, give or take. And that would plant her birth year around 1954 or 1955. Hopefully I'm not too far off there. Now she was born and raised LDS. It sounds like she was actually born in Utah and was there for a while around the Logan area, which is like a little over an hour from Salt Lake. I don't know. It's kind of hard to find info on Sandy's early life. What I do know is that her father passed away tragically and unexpectedly in 1975. I'm sure that that was very difficult for her and her family. Um, She did have two siblings, according to my source material, a brother and a sister. Like I said, I don't have all the tea on her family history, but I know at the time of her father's death, she was about 19 or 20, and her dad and mother were living in the Burley area when he passed away, and she was still living in Utah. Now, her sister at this time in 1975 was also living near Burley in the Jerome County area. So honestly, that might have been when she moved up there. Like I said, I can't confirm that, but when her dad died, it's reported that she was still living in Utah, and at some point between his death and the early 80s, she did make her way up to Idaho to Jerome County. In 1981, she married a man by the name of Milo Ross. And insignificant side note, this is actually Milo's second marriage, but I couldn't find any information on his first wife. She and Milo went on to have two children together. This was a girl named Andra and then a boy named Paul. Coincidentally, they lived in Paul, Idaho, which is just on the other side of the freeway from Burley. Now, we have to talk about this. 
Sandy grew up in Utah, right? Like I said, she grew up LDS, Mormon, um, but somewhere along the way, she left the Mormon church and then became avidly against it. Her son Paul would go on to state, quote, it was all witchery to her. It was made up to try and make people feel good about the terribleness and the awkwardness of life, close quote. So I, I get the vibe that she was very outspoken about how much she disagreed with it or how she felt like it was a little culty, how it caused her a lot of trauma, etc. So she and Milo did fall away from the church and were not practicing Mormons. Which, in that area of Idaho, I'm sure was a little difficult. Because, especially in the 90s, it was so heavily LDS, right? In that area. Even now, it's pretty heavily Mormon. But back then, I mean, I cannot imagine. They're living their life. They have two children, not practicing LDS. From my understanding, they were decently functional. Like, nothing crazy of note yet. And kind of stay that way for a long time. And I believe it was right around the 10 years of marriage mark. They fell into a disagreement to end it all. Now, this disagreement would last for fucking years. And it initially started because Paul, their son, started showing interest in the Mormon church once he became a teenager. It kind of surprises me that Sandra and Milo didn't kind of expect this a little. Like, how do you guys not talk about this? Sandy was so passionately against the church. Milo knew that. How did this never come up in conversation? Like, what was your guys' plan if one of the kids became interested? Especially because the kids are going to public school. Like, I'm sure so many of the kids at their school were LDS, kind of like my high school was. And they probably felt a little left out in a lot of ways. So anyways, Sandy started catching on to Paul's interest a little, and I assume freaked the fuck out. She was adamant that Paul would not be going to activities, Sunday church, visiting with the missionaries, etc. And me myself, as an ex-member of the LDS church, I can kind of empathize with both sides, right? Like, right after I left the church and for a few years after, I felt very angry and held a lot of resentment and hate in my heart for this religion that I didn't agree with. Now that I've had quite a while to let the dust settle and gain some retrospect um, and explore some other religions and learn and grow, I don't think I would ever tell my child they couldn't at least explore a religion, you know? And there's hard lines, right? Like if, if the religion is rooted in racism or something like that, that's, that's going to be a no. And I would probably want to supervise their interest a little bit, but if they find peace and comfort and, you know, they have friends there, I guess that's chill. As long as they're not going to try to get me to go to church whatever. So obviously this caused a huge rift between Milo and Sandra. Milo had literally no problem with his son exploring the religion. I assume he thought it was better than him getting into drinking or drugs or whatever. And over the coming months and years, Milo would start getting kind of sketchy about it. He was lying for Paul so he could go to his activities, helping him hide evidence like his Book of Mormon and such, defending him every chance he got, and even sneaking Paul to church on Sundays. This made Sandy nuclear when she found out. And I think she found out because as Paul got older, he wanted to serve a mission. Now, most of our listeners probably know what a Mormon mission is, but for those of you who don't, people who are worthy of serving a mission, basically if they follow church rules very strictly, they can essentially submit a request to be sent somewhere to do humanitarian aid and spread the gospel of the church. Now, I can only speak from my own personal experience being an ex-Mormon. I don't know what it is like now, but back in the 90s, um, Mormon missionaries could not call home except for twice a year, which was Mother's Day and Christmas. They were in very close quarters with one mission companion who was the same sex. And every single day, every hour of every day, they were strictly 
um, what's the word, supervised to do anything that matches up to like what a missionary should be doing, right? So it's not like they could have a girlfriend. They weren't allowed to go swimming. Um, they were not definitely not allowed to like go to bars or anything like that. They are strictly there to be spreading the gospel of the church and try to convert people over to Mormonism. And from my personal experience, you know, being an ex-Mormon who was in the Mormon church in the 90s, at this time, specifically boys were heavily pressured to serve a mission. And the consequences of not serving a mission, I mean, there was nothing that the, like the church did to you, but culturally you were definitely ostracized if you chose not to serve. So as Paul is growing interested in this religion, I assume he might've also adopted this mindset of like, okay, I'm a Mormon, I'm a young male, I plan to serve a mission. Sandy unfortunately blamed a lot of this on Milo, and this argument went on and on and on, and they just could not come to an agreement on it for years. Like, this wasn't just a three-dayer. This completely threw their marriage off track, and in late 1993, they did file for divorce. And when I was first researching this case, I did not realize how long it took them to finalize this divorce. It took a fucking long time. So they separated, and it's worth noting that Sandy seemed to be in complete denial that this was even happening. I would assume they had gotten in heated arguments often, like prior, and he would leave or whatever, but he would always come back. But this time, Milo was truly done. And friends and family of Sandy became concerned when Sandy was going around to everyone stating that they'd be back together soon. But she deadass was saying that for years. When Milo initially filed for divorce back in 1993, he included an incident report of Sandy coming home intoxicated and becoming violent with him and stated that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I understand that because arguing with your spouse... A lot of people feel like it can be repaired or managed. But once she allegedly laid hands on him, he said no more, and I respect that so much. Even when the divorce was finalized in May of 1998, five years later, she was still in complete denial that they were done. Friends and family of theirs would later state that Sandy was downplaying it, saying they were just taking a break, and then they talked to Milo, who was adamant that they were done for good and there would be no reconciliation. Obviously, this was confusing as well as concerning for their friends and family. But like, what could they do, you know? Divorce is difficult. I'm sure they were just trying to be there for them both in any way they knew how. Okay, so stay with me here. We're jumping timelines a little bit. In 1997, before the divorce was finalized, Milo actually met someone in what I can only describe as a whirlwind of a relationship. Her name was Maida Marie Jones. She was working as a waitress at the time and by all accounts was a wonderful woman with a heart of absolute gold. Now, Maida did have children from a previous marriage. She'd actually been married twice before meeting Milo. So she had four kids, but I don't know if they were split between the two marriages. It also stated somewhere that she did have some grandchildren at this time, but that information couldn't be confirmed. And it's probably better that we just respect their privacy anyway. Like I said, my source material reported that Maida was a wonderful person as well as an exceptional mother. She was a very hard worker, which doesn't surprise me. After four kids, I'm sure she has a lot of patience and also determination. From my understanding, Maida and Milo decided to kind of hold off on publicizing their relationship just until the divorce between Milo and Sandra had fully gone through. I think they were trying to prevent any rumors of infidelity while Milo 
and Sandra were still together. When the divorce was finalized in May of 1998, Maida happened to be having some pretty intense work done on her house. So Milo offered his guest room in his home for Maida to be staying in while the work was being completed. Now at this point, Milo was living in Hazleton, Idaho, which is about 25 minutes west of Paul, which is where him and Sandra had lived prior. I know that's kind of like, hmm, eye rolly, like, oh, you're gonna stay in the guest room. But Maida was a devout and practicing Mormon, so from the research I've done, it does seem like that that was actually the case here. So Maida and Milo were engaged by October 23rd of 1998, not even six months after the divorce was finalized. And if you're wondering if Sandy was mad, that's an understatement. She was already spiraling and everyone kind of knew it, but this really set her over the edge. Some friends and family report that she was acting insanely erratic. Milo and Maida, however, were completely over the moon, and it really seemed like they had great support, that they were super in love, and they were doing the damn thing. Now, Paul, the son, at this point was of age and had already submitted his mission papers and was literally gearing up to leave. The same weekend his father got engaged, he was hosting his farewell Sunday service at the nearby LDS church. So just two days after the engagement on October 25th, 1998, Maida, Milo, and Paul spent the Sunday morning doing last-minute prepping and planning for the post-service gathering that they were hosting. I believe this was going to be like a combined mission farewell slash engagement party kind of gathering. As it got closer for when they had to leave for the service, Maida still had a few things that she had to get done around the house. So she told Milo and Paul to go on ahead and that she would meet them at the church shortly. After the boys left, Maida got the roast in the oven and started polishing off everything so it would all be perfect for the guests. But sadly, Maida would never make it to the farewell service that day. Guys, this is not a paid ad, and I didn't tell anyone I'm doing this, but I have to give a shout out to this adorable and eco-friendly Idaho business. The other day, I was doing Andy things, and I stumbled across this place called Roots. Now, I'm a Saturday market, sundress, locally sourced brunch kind of girly, and if that's your vibe too, you are going to love this place. Roots is the first full-service, zero-waste grocery store and cafe in the U.S. Their entire prerogative is lowering the amount of plastic waste on our planet, while simplifying our lives and our shopping experience. They offer healthy alternatives to bulk foods, household cleaning products, personal care products, hygiene products, full service deli items, and they have freshly prepared meals for shoppers and guys, the meals slap. I love that I can bring my own container, fill it up with any naturally sourced feel-good ingredients that I want, swipe my card, and then I'm on my way. I came home and barbecued with the spices that I purchased, and it was such a huge difference in quality and how I felt after. Like, I didn't feel all tired after my meal, and that's what I love about naturally sourced organic options. Roots also brought me this sense of, like, neighborhood friendliness. Guys, I'm pretty sure the owner of the place was the one making my lunch. I got the Sir Anthony sandwich, which is basically like a ham sandwich on steroids. I want it every day for lunch forever, but they also have a lot of vegan and vegetarian options as well. And the apothecary that shares a building is where you're gonna get your vitamins, your soaps, your mushrooms, your cookbooks, your essential oils, and I love tea, and the amount of teas I had never even heard of at the apothecary. This is where I'm doing my Christmas shopping this holiday season. 
for sure. If you guys want more information, check out their website. It's rootszerowastemarket.com and they are located in Garden City just outside of downtown Boise. They're open Tuesday through Saturday, 9 to 7. Trust me on this one, guys. You cannot put a price on how you feel and all of that starts with what you're putting in or on your body. When you make it over there, make sure you tag the Idaho Crime Squad pod in the Instagram post. Now back to the show. When Maida didn't show up to Paul's farewell service, Milo obviously thought this was odd and was worried about her. Maybe her car broke down or, or something. But when Milo and Paul arrived home, they immediately noticed the overwhelming scent of cleaning supplies. And a rug was missing from the living room. The roast that Maida had been preparing was also still in the oven, completely burnt to a crisp and Maida was nowhere to be found. Thankfully, Milo did not waste any time, and he immediately called 911 to report his fiance missing. Now, when police arrived, they knew right away that something terrible had happened. Almost immediately, they found a bullet hole in the wall of the kitchen and saw lots and lots of blood spatter, enough to make them believe they would sadly be looking for a body and not a missing persons. When interviewing Milo and Paul, their stories were very consistent. They were at church all morning and had expected Maida to meet them there. And this seemed believable to police as their alibi would be pretty easy to verify. But towards the end of the interview, Milo revealed something shocking to detectives. Someone else was home that morning. Sandra and Milo's 17-year-old daughter, Andra, had stated earlier that day that she would not be attending the farewell ceremony. She claimed she didn't feel well, she decided to stay home, whatever. But through all the chaos in her own home of Maida going missing, Andra refused to come out of her room and would not talk to anybody. Even when detectives sat her down to question her, she was white as a ghost and would not make eye contact with them. The only thing that she really had to say was when she asked for the keys to her truck. The detectives looked at each other and then looked at her and said, no, that is part of a crime scene. Meanwhile, crime scene investigators recovered bullets from the holes in the wall, as well as photographing blood spatter, trying to dust for fingerprints. They also noted that there was a box spring and mattress missing from the basement. They examined the crime scene from top to bottom, and that included Andra's truck, which the most damning evidence that they found was blood running out of the bed and onto the bumper. Crime scene investigators obviously collected this and immediately had it sent out for testing. Now, news spread fast through the small town of Hazleton and surrounding areas. A tip line was set up, and although it didn't get the traffic detectives were hoping for, everything came to a screeching halt when they received a call from a woman named Colleen. Who is Colleen, you might ask? She is none other than the maternal grandmother of Paul and Andra. Yep, that's right. This is Sandy's mom on the phone. And when I say Colleen had the tea and it was piping hot. She first voiced her concerns that she thought that her daughter Sandra might have had something to do with Maida's disappearance. She told investigators that not only was Sandy an alcoholic, but she was a fucking mean drunk. At this point, Sandy was living and working in Sun Valley. Colleen went into detail about how seriously concerned friends and family had been about Sandra's behavior the last few years and how she was in complete denial that she and Milo were done. So not only was it a harsh reality when Milo got engaged to Maida, but she also blamed Maida for Paul choosing to serve a mission. But the most intriguing part of this phone call from Colleen, one, they learned about a storage unit that belonged to Sandra. And two, 
Colleen told them that she saw Sandra the day that Maida went missing, and Sandra had with her a 22 caliber pistol. It didn't take long for investigators to be granted a search warrant for the storage unit. And inside, they found cleaning supplies just covered in blood, as well as the bed frame and mattress that were missing from the basement. And I know the way I'm presenting this, it sounds like a slam dunk to us that Sandy obviously did this, but detectives actually had somebody else as their number one suspect. Andra. And when she was finally brought in for a formal interview, she asked her father Milo to leave the room. After Milo left, she took a big exhale and said, quote, one thing you should know before we start, the head is not with the body, close quote. Yeah, she went on to state that on the morning of October 25th, 1998, Andra had received a call from her mom, Sandy, that morning, asking if she could swing by in a little bit to grab a mattress and a bed frame that belonged to her that were in Milo's basement. She said, please don't tell your father I'm coming, but I need you there to be able to let me into the house when I get there. Andra was hesitant about this, but she did eventually agree, and that's when she came up with the idea to tell her dad that she was sick and would be staying home from the farewell service. According to Andra, when Sandy got there, her and Maida immediately got into a screaming match in the kitchen. Sandy demanded Andra go downstairs into the basement to look for the bed frame and the mattress she was there for, and Andra was just happy to get away from the drama, but while she was in the basement, she heard two loud pops, which she recognized as gunshots. Now, we can assume that she immediately went into shock and was terrified and hesitant to go back upstairs, but when she finally did, she saw Maida's lifeless body roll up in the living room rug. And mother of the year here, Sandy, immediately started pleading with Andra to help her clean up the crime scene and help her hide the body. Now, just as a reminder to the listeners, Andra is 17 years old. Her frontal lobe is far from fully developed. Her decision-making skills are probably not at the peak that they will reach someday in her life. And don't get me wrong, I don't love making excuses for kids who do things like commit murder. But let's let's be realistic here and say that this is probably one of the first times that Andra had ever experienced going into shock. I don't know how many of the listeners here have ever been in shock before, but I have, and it is one of the times where I really did not recognize myself or what I was even capable of. And a lot of people will bring up the argument or the theory of fight, flight, fawn, or freeze. From my understanding, that is more of a response to something traumatic happening. And I'm not saying that this wasn't traumatic, but what I do think is that Andra had gone into actual psychological shock. And when that happens, it's very common for us as humans to receive a surge of adrenaline, as well as experience something called depersonalization, which for lack of a better term is essentially an out-of-body experience. And adrenaline and depersonalization can be a very dangerous combo. So in this state, Andra did agree to help her mother and she helped Sandy carry Maida's body to the back of the teenager's truck. Sandy then instructed Andra to drive out to the Milner Gooding Canal. And when they got there, Sandy pulled out a very large hunting knife and decapitated Maida's body. Andra waited in the truck completely horrified while her mother carried Maida's head and body and dumped them into the canal. Sandy then said to Andra, quote, 
Don't worry, nobody will be able to identify her if they do find her. Andra was ultimately placed under arrest, but before that happened, police had her escort them to the canal where she believed Maida's body had been dumped. After this, Andra would go on to be charged as an accessory to murder. So as police are working on getting an arrest warrant for Sandy, they're also draining the canal, which took nine hours. And in the exact location where Andra had taken them, they were able to locate Maida's head. According to one of the lead detectives on the case, severed heads, they don't float. They're not buoyant. So where Sandy had dropped Maida's head in, it sunk and it stayed. Investigators were able to find the rest of Maida's remains about a mile downstream. The medical examiner confirmed Maida's identity using dental records and also confirmed that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. Now, Tuesday, October 27th, 1998, the same day they found Maida's remains and just two days after the murder, Sandra Jonas was arrested on her way into work. And while they were booking and processing Sandy at the station, they found the same hunting knife that was used to decapitate Maida. But even more interesting, something fell out of her pocket and clinked across the floor of the police station. This small object was Maida's engagement ring that Milo had given her just days before. Ugh, talk about incriminating evidence. Now, when Sandy was first questioned, she shut the f*** up and did not want to talk to investigators, which as frustrating as that is, it is a very smart thing to do, especially if you're guilty. She was ultimately charged with first-degree murder and was being held without bond in Jerome County. Now, investigators had an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence, right? But while they were gearing up for trial, they found out that Milo's first wife, her name's Vicky, claimed several times over the years that Sandra was pretty much constantly threatening her. And this is while Sandra is married to Milo, so I'm not exactly sure what role Vicky was even still playing in their lives or if she was even playing a role at all. Regardless of this, Vicky stated she was not only afraid of Sandra over the years, but had been threatened several times. And weirdly enough, Vicky stated after one of these threats, a mysterious fire broke out at her house and Vicky was the sole survivor. Yeah, people died in it. She stated she wholeheartedly believed at that time and to this day that that fire was started by Sandra. This fire was quickly brushed off as accidental by the fire marshal and he refused to reopen the case. But this was at least helpful to the prosecution in being able to paint Sandy out as spiteful, dangerous, and violent. In true Idaho fashion, the death penalty was threatened on Sandra. And thank God, because in July of 1999, she accepted a plea that would find her guilty of second-degree murder. At her sentencing, there was a psychiatrist who testified that he believed she had borderline personality disorder, that she had problems with her interpersonal relationships, blah, blah, blah. On November 4th, 1999, Sandra Jonas was given a life sentence with a fixed 25-year term, which means she would have to serve 25 years before she was eligible for parole. Let's rewind a little bit back to when Andra was arrested. She was actually offered a plea deal as an accessory to murder in exchange for her testimony against her mother. Obviously, it didn't go to trial, but the plea agreement still stands. She was tried as a minor and actually only received two years of probation. I'm not going to voice my opinion on that. Take that as you will. Sandra Jonas is being held in the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center. I shit you not, guys. She's up for parole in October. And my little birdies in the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center state that she has never even shown an ounce of remorse for what she's done. So at this point, her fate and our safety lie in the hands of the Idaho Parole Board. That's it for this week, guys. Signing off for the Idaho Crime Squad pod. I'm Andy with an I. Take care and stay safe.
The Idaho Crime Squad Pod is an Idaho Crime Squad production. Trademark 2022. All rights reserved.